Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program, and I've been looking forward to speaking with Colin O'Mara for some time. He's president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joining us on our program, talk with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, first of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, how do you describe um, what the fund has, has been about? Yeah, so, I mean, for your listeners, the easiest way is, is if they've ever gone to a park or a, a playground or a, a state park or a national park or a forest or a wildlife refuge, they've benefited from this program. The Land and Water Conservation Fund takes a small amount of money off of royalties from offshore oil and gas development and then invests it in projects across the country. There's been projects in every single county and across the entire country, more than 41,000 projects. Um, that have been done through this program in the past 50 years. And what is exactly is happening with this now? So there is a, is a great bipartisan effort in a, in a time where there isn't a lot of bipartisanship um, to permanently authorize the program, which means allow it to kind of be funded. But now there's a big bipartisan push uh, in, the, in, the, in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to permanently fund it. Um, the program's supposed to get $900 million a year, um, which is a portion to the state to visit for federal agencies. It's only ever been fully funded twice. Um, and so there is a big push right now to try to make sure that, that those resources are there because at a time when more kids are looking at screens and folks are increasingly living, um, spending most of the time indoors, uh, and the need to have great outdoor places for folks to recreate um, is more important than ever. You say it's only been fully funded twice? Yeah, and it's in 54-year history, um, wow. in 1998 and 2001, and that was really specifically around a couple projects in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem uh, that they were trying to, it was a mine they were, they were basically bought after um, they kind of reached a negotiation that having having <laughs> having pretty significant uh, gold mining operations in the just outside of Yellowstone wasn't really a good idea. Um, but yeah, but only twice in the 50 years. But I mean, this is protecting, you know, is, am I overstating this to think, this is protecting some pretty important stuff. Yeah, I had a, I had a chance to testify um, before the the Senate the other day on this, and I, and I said like this, this is how you protect the places that make America America. And you know, in the fifty years since the program started, um, our population has gone up by more than one hundred and thirty million people. <laughs> we, we've we've lost you know eighty ninety million acres of outdoor spaces to development and housing and energy development and roads. Um, and so this is like the one program 
that works across the entire country to try to make sure that those special places are available. So no matter what zip code you you live in, no matter what your income is, you can enjoy kind of the amazing outdoor recreation that um, really just makes America unique in the world. Mm. Wow. I mean, are there there numbers in terms of what outdoor recreation means like to the economy and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's funny. We didn't start tracking it until about in the last, in the last 10 years. But it's an $887 billion, billion with a B, um, billion-dollar economy. It supports 7.6 million jobs across the country. And the interesting thing is that these are jobs that are in you know, cities that are close to destinations, but also in some of the most rural communities in the country. These are folks that are you know, running you know, hotels or restaurants or uh, retail shops or you know, uh, fish and tackle shops or you know, the whole range of support services that are, are needed when folks want to, uh, to travel. And it's not just around the, you know, the big, the famous you know, national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or the Tetons or you know, Zion or Bryce, or the, the places in Utah. It's, you know, jobs that support in places like Jamaica Bay, right? And folks want to go visit the refuge there and they, and they they're going to have a meal or maybe they run a, maybe they run a kayak or a canoe. Um, it's all those, all those additional jobs that we would not have if it wasn't for programs like this, protecting special places for all of us. Mm. We're talking on our program with Colin O'Mara, who is president and CEO of National Wildlife Federation. Joined us on our program talking with us about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Now, this legislation, what's the likelihood, if this passes both houses of Congress, of this actually being signed into law by the president? I think he, I mean, the interesting thing with the president is that if you can get it to his desk, he's actually signed <laughs> most things, um, because that also means you got through the Republican Senate in the process. And this is one of those pro- programs that's interesting because it does benefit everybody. And so you have very conservative senators from like Western states that are huge champions of, of this program, as well as some of the most progressive members, you know, from the, from like the New York delegation. And so it's, I think it's, it's one of those areas that shows that you know, there are some things left in Washington, maybe not many, that can still unite us across parties and having, you know, high-quality outdoor spaces and more kids outdoors and, you know, protecting our cultural heritage does seem to be one of those. And, you know, there's still some folks that are concerned about the price tag or, you know, but there's, you know, the, the amount of money we spend on other things in the federal government that really don't always benefit everybody. Um, this is one of those programs that gives everybody a shot to to enjoy the great outdoors. And what role can people who are listening to our discussion today play in this? Yeah, I think New York's benefited incredibly um, well. I mean, the city itself has got, I think, $350 million worth of projects in the last few decades. Anyone that's enjoyed, like, the like the boardwalks and the trails around, like, the Rockways or, like, at, at the um, at Coney Island, uh, like Comente Park, um, Battery Park, I mean, all these, you know, kind of major destinations um, benefited from this program. And if they get an opportunity, I mean, just letting their 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 Congress the member of Congress know, um, some folks like Nadia Velasquez has been on the committee. She's been a leading champion of the uh, of the program for a long time. Um, obviously, Senator Schumer, um, in his leadership role, um, has been pushing for this and been a great champion as well. But if they do have a chance to to you know reach out to their member of Congress, um, that's always helpful to say this is important because we want to have these great places for the 
to be protected for the future. Um, there's a lot of new members. For those of your listeners that are kind of northern New Jersey, and a lot of those members are new. Um, just letting them know that it's important. Um, they're trying to find their way and find the bathrooms and all the challenges of, <laughs> of being in, in D.C. Um, but I think I think just showing that it's you know this is an American issue. This isn't Republican. This isn't Democrat. And I think most folks want to have strong, vibrant local economies. Um, I think the more they hear that from us, the better. If they want to visit our website, um, it's the National Wildlife Federation, NWF.org, NWF.org. And um, there's information about the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and we can do everything for folks if they want to contact their congressman or send them something on Twitter, and we can help with all of that. Um, but again, this is the kind of, you know, it's, it's the kind of, the, it's a lowercase p politics, right? This is just saying, hey, let's, let's do this good thing that you guys are fighting over so many other things. Colin O'Mara, who is president, CEO of National Wildlife Federation on the web at nwf.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is something we're definitely going to be watching. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Cedric Alexander. Uh, Cedric has a career of over 40 years in public service. He served at every level of government as a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, as a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, as public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police and deputy mayor. In addition to having been president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, he was appointed by President Obama back in 2015 to the task force on 21st century policing. He's also a frequent contributor to law enforcement coverage for CNN and MSNBC. And he's the author of The New Guardians, Policing in America's Communities for the 21st Century. He's joining us today to talk with us about In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Interesting publication. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me as well. It's great to be with you guys. This... um, present this publication this latest work what was this like putting this together well it's been in the process for the last couple of years and one thing that motivated me to write this piece is based on was actually based on the beginning of 2017 uh, when we saw a great deal of criticism coming in the way of our federal law enforcement our intelligence agencies across the country and around the globe And it reminded me, having spent 40 years in public service myself, the importance of those career employees and the work that they do to keep America safe every day. And it's just not those federal law enforcement officers or intelligence officers. It's also the men and women who keep our communities safe, whether it's police or fire, or whether it's folks who are cleaning the roadways out there for us in the wintertime, or whatever the case may happen to be the clerical staff, the National Weather Service at the federal level, our air traffic controllers, the 22 million people who make up local, state, and federal employees across this country, including our military uh, folks, I think that we have to recognize and applaud them for the great work that they do, no matter how much criticism they they may receive sometimes even from our elected officials. We also tend to take them very much and take their work for granted, don't we? We do. We take the work that they do. But just think about every morning, uh, your drive in to work, your drive out when you leave, 
the folks who are working on our roadways, our public safety personnel, people who are who are monitoring our movement uh, through traffic engineering. Uh, all these are public and career employees working at some level of government in this country that we oftentimes just totally overlook and really don't think about or give very much thought to uh, the work that they do. We think about our military that's serving us in this country and around the globe, uh, the work that they do, the dangerous work that they do uh, oftentimes. Uh, This book is clearly, uh, for me, was motivated by the fact, here again, myself, who had spent so many years in public service, have been around a lot of men and women who have worked in this profession and who have lost their lives protecting our nation, protecting our communities. Uh, It is truly a tribute to them and the work that they do on an ongoing basis. And sometimes uh, you can never pay them enough for the great work that they do. Mm. Having Elijah Cummings pen the foreword to your book, what was the significance of that for you? Well, I have to admit, it is a beautifully written foreword. And I had an opportunity to meet him back in May of last year, 2019, uh, when I was testifying before Congress. And I was just so uh, overwhelmed by his presence and his kindness and his commitment to public service. And when I had an opportunity to meet him, I shared with him the book that I was, that I was, uh, the manuscript I was getting ready to complete. And it was at that moment that I asked him if he would be willing to review the manuscript, read it, and maybe write a blurb or a foreword. And as you can see, he wrote a, uh, uh, a magnificent foreword that really speaks to the democracy of this nation and his love for this nation and the expectations that we must have for each other if we're going to continue to be a strong nation. So many people have this tendency to cite three branches of government. They point to the founders of this country. Realistically, could they have imagined the role that is played by those 22 million unelected government workers at the federal, state, and local levels that you're talking about? Well, you know, if you think about it, the founders had a great deal of vision, even in 1776. Uh, And here we are 244 years later. Uh, They remarkably had vision to be able to recognize that with the three branches of government, the judicial, executive, and legislative branch, that they had to write a constitution and create a nation where each one of those branches would oversee the other. One was equally as important as the other. It keeps us in balance, even though there appeared to be an unbalance, right, imbalance right now. Uh, it is to all. It is to keep the nation in check uh, when you have three separate uh, levels of government, which for the last 244 years have worked for us very well. Uh, however, my book, I have written that there is a fourth branch. And that fourth branch, not being an official branch, as written in the Constitution, 
but certainly one that is important, and that is the people themselves, the American people. We are a part of government, and we are what government is about. We are who government was written for. And that fourth branch, we have a great deal of influence in our communities in our day, on our elected officials, and holding them accountable and responsible to do the things that are so important to keep our to keep our constitution safe and to keep our communities safe. So the fourth branch of government, to me, are all of us, you, me, all of us, the 300 million Americans in this country who also have oversight of our elected officials. And we ourselves hold them accountable to do the job uh, in Congress and at the state level and at the, le- and at the local level to do the things that are important for us. Do you see them exercising a degree of autonomy? Uh, the fourth branch? Yes. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I mean, they can't, but they do have the they do have the power of their votes and uh, the power of influence in their communities with their elected officials. They have the power to hold them accountable, uh, and they have the power to vote them in or out of office uh, by majority vote. So. Uh, they're a very significant part of who we are as a nation. We can't forget that. We're a very important piece of this. We are. This partisanship that has been um, a paralyzing factor in politics for some time has obviously, many people would say, been heightened in recent years. Um, I believe hyper-partisanship is the way that it's characterized. What distinguishes partisanship, which many people would say has been around for some time, versus what we're seeing now? Well, partisanship is just part of the, our American way of, of doing business ever since the beginning. Uh, you always had a right and left side of the aisle, where they may have differed on a number of uh, ideologies or philosophies as it, rate, as it related to what was best for this country. That's normal. But what we live now, we're in a state of hyper-partisanship where there appear to be very little, uh, if you will, uh, respect for each other's ideas and being supportive of each other for the best interests of the American people. And it's become so hyper-partisan there's even research out there that even suggests that we're not just divided by gender and race. Uh, there's evidence to show that as a nation, we become very divided by our political affiliation. And that is just so unfortunate for this country because we're much better than that. We're greater than that. Uh, but there is certainly leadership out there on both sides of the aisle. Uh, that is not doing what they need to be doing so that we can move this country forward. And the unfortunate part of it is they're American people. They want their elected officials uh, to be able to come to an agreement and to resolve and find ways to to, to move this country ahead as one nation. Mm. One of the things that sometimes comes up from people in the executive and the judicial branches of government will say that civil service is highly politicized. 
um, mm-hmm. and that most of the workers, they will say, are Democrats. Mm-hmm. Do the facts actually back that up? No, no. You have employees, uh, both at the federal, state, and local level. Uh, many of them are are parts of, 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 many of them are Democrats, some are Republicans. Uh, but if you were to look at the data across this country, you will find, and depending on the part of the country that you're in, uh, whether you look at the here again, local, state, or federal level, uh, those career employees are Republicans, they're Democrats, uh, they're independents. But here again, it may depend on the part of the country that you may live in. But the most important piece, uh, if you put all the data together, uh, it's a it's a combination of all of us. And it's all not Democrats. Uh, they're all not people who are looking to live off uh, uh, to live off of being a, a career employee. It's how they make their living, but they work very hard at it. And they are both Democrats and they're Republicans. Hmm. How do you respond to those who stop short of calling the fourth branch the deep state? I don't respond to it because it's the most, uh, first of all, it's a very irresponsible statement. There's no deep state in this country. There's no clandestine uh, uh, plan to overthrow the government. Uh, That is all in and of itself is just distraction. And the fourth branch, certainly, when I write about it, when I talk about it, has nothing to do with being a, 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 a deep state. It has everything to do with the American people recognizing that of the 22 million people or the 300 million people, I should say, that make up this country, uh, they are, are I what I call the fourth branch of government uh, merely because they have influence. They have influence to vote. Uh, they have influence to they have the ability to to influence their elected officials about what they feel is best for their neighborhoods, their communities. Uh, but these are everyday law-abiding uh, American citizens who only want the very best for this nation and who have an expectation that their nation leaders, their elected officials, will take the responsibility and do what's right uh, on their behalf. But this whole uh, idea about there being some deep state, there's no deep state that's out there. We're talking on our program with Cedric Alexander and talking with him about his book, In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Very interesting discussion that we're having. When you talk about the legitimacy of government, there are people who will doubt that. You point out something that I think is very interesting. When you talk about those times where um, there have been these government shutdowns and there are people who are working in government on the federal level, Go to job, go to their jobs without pay, mm-hmm. um, and and you know they're performing a full day's work and then some, mm-hmm. and don't think anything of it. Well, and here again, that's in uh, their attitudes about their job, their love for their nation, 
the ability to still be able to get up when you had a shutdown in this country uh, not too long ago. Uh, your TSA workers, your air traffic controllers, your National Weather Service uh, meteorologists at the, who worked for the federal government, your 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 uh, uh, federal law enforcement, your military, your Coast Guard. These individuals went to work every day, and they just did not miss one paycheck. They missed several paychecks. That park ranger who keeps our parks safe, they did their jobs up until the time that the parks reopened. But there's some parts of our infrastructure in our country we cannot shut down, even when there are politics involved. And we saw these people go to work every day. And then we even saw a nation stand up behind them and start providing them sometimes with food and services. So that even though they had not received a paycheck, they still very diligently came to work. That's those 22 million people I refer to that keep our country going every day, that make us a democracy and uphold our republic. That's who they are. And oftentimes they're overlooked. Oftentimes they're taken for granted, but you being able to get in your car or on the train or whatever your mode of transportation, during that shutdown, those people still came to work every day. They still made sure that we had everything that we need to do to keep our airways safe, our country safe, to guard our borders, and to be able to do the things that make us the powerful nation that we are. And there's a lot to be said about the American worker and those who go out there at the local, state, and federal level and our contractors and even those in private industry who play a role in keeping our nation and keeping things moving in this country and support our infrastructure. That's what this book is about. That's who it's for. And I encourage people to pick up a copy and share it with a friend because it's about you. It's about this nation. It's about a commitment that people who live in this country have to this nation and will do whatever they can to keep us going. Very well stated. A final question for you, and I think it's an appropriate one, you know, given recent um, impeachment inquiries and the like, with the case of whistleblowers, the protections that are in place uh, for those who speak out against corrupt government practice. Are those what they should be? Absolutely. And we should have whistleblowers in this country who work at every part of government to make sure that we're keeping ourselves in balance. We're not abusing. We're not taking advantage of. We're not being wasteful. And we're not doing harm. And when people see that, they must be able to report it. They must be able to report it without a fear of being retaliated against. But it also has to be thoroughly investigated because we know upon occasion people will make statements and comments that are not true. But we cannot operate without having people who feel that they can come forward and share what they have seen, what they have heard that may put us all this at risk, put our jobs at risk, put our communities at risk, and they must be protected. But whatever they report, it has to be thoroughly and fairly and without bias investigated 
the book entitled In Defense of Public Service, How 22 Million Government Workers Will Save Our Republic. Cedric Alexander, the um, author of the book and our guest in this portion of the program, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, over a career of 40 years in public service. He served at every level of government, a federal security director in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, a deputy commissioner for criminal justice in New York State, public safety director in a major county, and as a city chief of police, deputy mayor. And uh, he has quite the accomplished background. And thank you very much for joining us and sharing some of your insights on our program and thank, today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. In this portion of our program on the fans, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, those of you joining us on radio.com, well, welcome aboard. This is Bob Solter. We shift into a discussion now with Ann Kim on our program. We'll remind you that at 7 o'clock this morning, we move on to Ann Ligori's Talking Golf here on WFAN, as happens this time of the year on Sunday mornings. Ann Kim is a writer, a lawyer, and a public policy expert. She has a long career in Washington, D.C., based think tanks working in and around Capitol Hill. She's also a contributing editor at Washington Monthly, where she was a senior writer. And she is joining us to talk with us about a book published by The New Press, it's entitled Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. And first of all, it's nice to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. Now, I find this to be a most interesting uh, publication because of the things that you talk about in this book, and we're going to get into talking about them on our program this morning. Um, and again, I'm very pleased to have you join us. You know, with all of this concern about the coronavirus and... Um, its impact, and you know, this is playing out literally every day here in New York City, and New York State is the epicenter in America of this virus and this illness, which has just literally exploded across the country and across the state and the city, uh, too. You know, I think of the young people that you write about in the book and think of how it is that they're being impacted and going to be impacted by this illness. It brings me back to a point that I often ask authors on this program. Why did you write this book at this point? So the book is about um, young people who are, quote, disconnected, young people who are not in school and not working. And there are a shocking number of young people who were in this situation, 4.5 million young people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are not in school, not working, and nobody seems to know about it. You know, I did not discover this problem. Uh, that's one of the shocking things to me, that there hasn't been a lot more written about this just huge population of young people who are, you know, falling behind. They're off the radar of our national conversation about opportunity and inequality and the future of our country. And I think it's going to matter a lot more because these are the same young people and many, many, many millions more who are going to be bearing the brunt of what's happening today. Um, you have young people who have been suddenly thrown out of college and young people who are disproportionately working in our restaurants and our retail stores. You know, the four and a half million young people I spoke about was during good times. It wouldn't surprise me if that number has already doubled. There's a mythology in America that if you work hard enough and play by the rules, you'll get ahead. And, you know, anybody uh, 
can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but it's simply not true anymore. Uh, you know, the young people I spoke to for this book, they were trying their darndest to get ahead. They were trying to get jobs. They had big dreams for themselves. These are not the stereotype of the young person who's, quote, failed to launch and is living in his parents' basement playing video games and not getting himself out there. That's not who we're talking about. The young people I'm talking about who are disconnected, many of them are trapped in circumstances beyond their control. Um, they are living in parts of the country where there are no jobs, there are no opportunities, there are no places to go for higher education. They might be caught up in a foster care system that literally dumps them out on the street when they age out. Or they may be caught up in a criminal justice system that is really harshly unfair uh, toward young people and young people of color in particular. So what I sought to uncover here, what I sought to describe, are the systemic and structural obstacles that are newly standing in the way of millions of young people and their chances of getting ahead. How would even a few years of being out of work and not in school just completely derail a person's life? Sure. I mean, when you're thinking about that period between ages 16 and 24, um, at least for me, you know, this is when you're deciding what you want to do with mm -hmm. yourself. You know, you maybe have internships, maybe you have that first job. Um, even if you just have a job scooping ice cream at the neighborhood ice cream shop, you're, you've got a boss. You know, you're learning how to work. You're learning to show up on time. You're learning how to get along with your coworkers. You're making connections. You know, maybe your boss knows somebody down the street who, you know, can give you another opportunity. But if you are, you know, and, and for a lot of young people, of course, should be going to higher education in some way and broadening your education, it's absolutely mandatory that you have to have some sort of higher education these days if you want to get a job that's going to pay you a living wage. Now, in those years, if you don't have access to those kinds of professional networks, if you don't have access to higher education, if you don't have access to work experience, you're falling behind all those kids who do. And that can have lifelong impacts on a young person. Uh, there's been some research done by the you know, Measure of America that's been tracking this youth connection problem for a number of years now, and it's tens of thousands of dollars uh, per year in um, disadvantage to your lifetime earnings just simply because you don't get that great first job and that great experience, and then you don't match up with the young people who do have that kind of experience. The whole idea of trying to promote a sense of independence is challenging uh, for a lot of the uh, young adults. There's a whole lot of them who are living at home. They depend on the parents for some form of financial assistance. What are the obstacles they're really facing today when it comes to trying to even approach that idea of independence? Yes, I think young adulthood in general has become a lot more challenging, even for young adults who have means. You know, parents, middle-class parents, upper-middle-class parents, you know, especially where you are, Bob, in the New York area, know that you've got to invest a lot more in your young people if you want them to get ahead. And that's this phenomenon of, of emerging adulthood that a sociologist named Jeffrey Arnett identified way back in 2004, that people are just taking more time. It used to be a generation ago that you graduated from high school at age 18, you got a job, high school diploma was enough for you, 
Maybe you got married in your early 20s. Maybe you had a kid in your early 20s. That's not the case anymore. People need to get higher education. Housing is more expensive. Everything is more expensive. The Federal Reserve did a study finding that one in three young adults ages 18 to 24 still gets help with basic bills from mom and dad. Another study I came across that's in the book found that the average middle-class family is going to spend about $50,000 on their young adult up until age 30. And a lot of that is the value of free housing, you know, if they're living with them while they're trying to get on their feet. But the, the amount of resources that are going into young adults actually at this point dwarfs what is going to your kids when they are, when they are infants. That's how important young adulthood has become. But if you're a young adult who doesn't have access to that kind of support, either because you don't have parents, you're in the foster care system, or you've been cut off from your parents in the child welfare system, or you have parents who care but who don't have the resources to help you, you're going to fall behind. And it's this divergence in experiences among young adults some adults, young adults are doing great. They've got mom and dad. They've got, you know, safety net. They've got a place to go. Um, and the young adults who don't have those kinds of means, that divergence, I think, is an, a very unappreciated driver of these really large structural gulfs, economic gulfs that we're beginning to see. Hmm. How does geography factor into this, Anne? Geography matters a lot. Um, I mentioned the Measure of America project by the Social Science Research Council before. And if you go to their website at measureofamerica.org, you can see a fantastic map that they've put together um, showing youth disconnection rates by county. And who you are matters. Where you are might matter even more. Uh, rural youth, you might be surprised. Uh, people, young people living in rural areas are actually much more likely to be disconnected than um, young people living in cities, and that's about physical proximity to jobs and physical proximity to colleges and you know, community colleges. Um, about 41 million people in America, this of all ages, but 41 million people in America live more than half an hour away from their nearest college or community college. That's pretty significant factor there in your ability to get ahead. Even in New York State, if you look at a map of New York State, um, you'll see counties in upstate New York, like Franklin County, uh, that where the share of young people who are out of school and out of work is 30%. That's close to one out of three young people ages 16 to 24 who are not in school, not working. Maybe New York City itself is closer to the national average of about 11%. And again, a little bit is about proximity to jobs in the urban area. But once you get out into the rural parts of the state, you are looking at one out of four, one out of five. And as I mentioned, Franklin County is high as one out of three young people who are missing out on uh, mainstream opportunity. What are the racial and gender dynamics at play here? These structural factors that I mentioned that stand in the way, mm-hmm. um, certainly stand in the way if you're a person of color. If you are a young person of color, you are twice as likely to be out of school and out of work as someone who is not. And the factors that lead to that, you know, are, are you know, fairly obvious once you think about it. You know, there's a lot of structural racism that stands in the way of young people. But you're also talking about 
decades of policies that have led to residential segregation in the neighborhoods that are predominantly of color, unfortunately, aren't getting the resources, so they don't get good schools. One example that I talk about in the book is a neighborhood called Sandtown that is in the heart of Baltimore. Um, Baltimore is one of those cities that is on the rise, gritty for a long time, but now you've got Under Armour there, you've got an Amazon distribution center, you know, this sparkling area called the Inner Harbor, uh, right on the waterfront. This is a beautiful place to shop and eat and that kind of thing back in the, back in the old days. Um, but then you have a neighborhood like Sandtown where if you drive through Lafayette Avenue, you will literally see block after block after block of boarded up townhouses, just very few cars in the street, um, people you do see, you know, in the middle of the day standing, you know, uh, there's no, there's no commerce, there's check cashers, that kind of thing going on, but no real business. And the high school there is one of the nation's dropout factories still. It's come a long way on high school graduation, but this particular high school still cannot graduate three-fourths of its students. And that is a consequence of decades of legalized redlining in Baltimore segregationist housing policies that, you know, really strip the wealth of neighborhoods for generations, and that's the consequence. There are a number of failures. Um, some of the most egregious failures are those that uh, literally disconnect young people from opportunity. And again, mm-hmm. that is the, you know, child welfare system that does just a horrific job of getting young people in foster care ready for independence. That's a criminal justice system, which has way too many young people in it to begin with. You know, adultifies you know, young people who may be making mistakes uh, as young people rather than, you know, they're not hardened criminals at that point. Um, government policies that fail to put the right amount of investment in rural areas so all young people can get ahead. But then also, you know, the programs that are supposed to help young people who are disconnected are severely lacking in resources. We only spend about $2.5 billion a year in federal dollars on programs that are targeted to this population. And $2.5 billion, maybe that sounds like a lot out of context, but keep in mind we have a $3.7 trillion annual federal budget, and we spend about $570 billion a year on defense. So $2.5 billion to invest in the next generation of workers is pretty paltry. So those, you know, failures put together mean that you have just millions of young people who are going to be decades behind in terms of their opportunities. We're talking with Ann Kim on our program on The Fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019. Thanks you for joining us on Radio.com. Ann is the author of Abandoned, America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection. Of course, this is a time with the coronavirus where you want to be practicing social distancing and also making sure that you tend to things like washing your hands, keeping your face, nose covered if you were out of doors, especially in some cases when you have to go into retail establishments. You just want to think and um, keep in mind that we're all in this together. New York City is one of those places where there are really a disproportionate share of young people who are in the criminal justice system. You know, in, in New York, 
8% of the population is ages 18 to 24, but more than one in five of the city's jail population is in that age group. Um, overall, you have close to, you have about 400,000 18 to 24 year olds in prisons and jails nationwide, and half of these are kids of color. Uh, young people account for a one in four of all arrests that are made, and you have a lot of actual kids, like kids who are under 18, who don't belong in an adult jail at all. Researcher named Kara uh, Drennan found that on you know any given day, you have about 10,000 kids who are in adult prisons, and over the year, over a year, 100,000 children are going to spend some time in adult facilities. And, you know, and the incarceration is absolutely catastrophic for a young person. You know, for one thing, there are no educational services. The um, Justice Policy Institute says only about 7%, you know, provide services to help young people when, if they're incarcerated, train for a job or get some education. Young people are much more likely to be assaulted by older inmates. And the worst part is, of course, the likelihood of reoffending. Seventy to eighty percent of young people who are reincarcerated are back in the system within two to three years, which means they are going to become lifelong uh, denizens of the system. If you can break that cycle before it even begins, uh, you're going to have a lot more young people who are going to avoid these catastrophic consequences as they age. Would you tell us about the Raise the Age campaigns that are attempting to address that statistic? Yes, so New York is actually one of those states that has begun to to make some progress on this problem of sending very young, um, nonviolent offenders to adult facilities or into detention at all. Um, Keep in mind that there is one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that there is now you know new brain science, neuroscience, is finding that the um, brain is physically not developed until age 25. You know we've always believed for a long time, and it's still true, that that period between infancy to age five, you know, is really the period that matters for brain development. That's why every middle class parent's got tons of baby Einstein toys lying around and that kind of thing. What neuroscientists have discovered is that 16 to 25 is about as important as far as physiological brain development. But what's happening there is that the parts of the brain that deal with judgment, with executive function, so to speak, um, impulse control, those are all developing. And I think that has gigantic ramifications for criminal justice reform. And that is part of the reason why there are nonprofit groups behind this effort called Raise the Age, which is to um, end laws, repeal laws that automatically send 16 and 17-year-olds to adult prisons because they are physiologically still children. They are not making adult decisions to commit whatever offenses they have been accused of. They are making mistakes that are in part driven by physiology. So in New York, 16-year-olds are no longer automatically tried as adults and about half a dozen other states have passed similar laws. Um, there are other efforts to divert young people away from detention centers and away from incarceration. In New York City, there's a fantastic nonprofit called Cases that is working with the court system uh, to divert young people away from incarceration and toward a uh, court-ordered, court-supervised 
training and education programs, and uh, that's one of the programs I profile in the book. It's just doing a phenomenal job. What might comprehensive in-school career preparation look like, and how early do you think that should start? I think it should happen in seventh and eighth grade, maybe even earlier. You know, many of the young people I talk to in the book and then research out there that looks at why kids drop out of high school, uh, a, a big reason that's cited is I didn't find the work relevant, mm-hmm. you know, and my teachers didn't care about me. Those two things. My teachers didn't look like me. They didn't care about me, and the work wasn't relevant anyway. There is a lot of focus, unfortunately, on getting kids ready for tests, and that does that may not seem terribly relevant. You know, how is that going to help a young person figure out what they want to do with their life, particularly if they're not interested in a four-year college, which seems to be the other thing that many high schools are pushing kids toward. You know, not everybody needs or wants a four-year degree, so there's very little exposure right now to other opportunities, the trades. You know, we actually have a shortage of electricians, you know, in, in the country. Um, but it's not something you, many kids hear about in high school or in advanced manufacturing. You know, being a manufacturing worker today requires some sort of higher education because you're working with computers. And the manufacturers will tell you that they're looking at skills shortages of a couple million workers over the next decade because there are so many other workers that are retiring. It's not a career you hear about in, in high school. The most effective programs... Another thing is, you know, having that promise of college and career or higher education and career actually does help to keep kids in school. And that's what they've discovered in McAllen, Texas, in a school district around McAllen, Texas, which I also talk about in the book. The superintendent there started offering what's called early college, uh, where young people can graduate from high school with both an associate's degree and their high school diploma. They've got the college credits. And he said that... Daniel King is his name. He said earning those college credits in high school for free was enough of an enticement to keep some young people from leaving high school altogether because they could see a clear path. They knew that it was relevant. They were saving time. They were saving money. And it was worth it to them to stay in school. And, uh, and many of them helped out their families by working. So they saw the practical of remaining in, in school. And if we can get more high schools to do that, get more high schools to create a path through high school in partnerships with businesses, um, much more relevant to young people's interests and maybe not quite as obsessed about tests and standardized test results, uh, we can eliminate the dropout problem altogether. You view the pattern of persistent underinvestment in young people as not only short-sighted but costly. How so? Yes, it, it is. You know, they say that an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure, and an ounce of prevention in this instance is worth a ton of cure. Um, Columbia University had done some research on the total societal costs of having a single young person disconnected from school and from work, and the lifetime cost of disconnection is about $700,000 per person you know, over their lifetime, um, if they remain out of school and out of work. And that figure includes not just direct costs, uh, if that person becomes homeless, if that person becomes part of a criminal justice system and they're housed there, um, welfare, uh, nutrition assistance, all the public supports, 
But you're also talking about um, lost tax dollars. If you don't have somebody who is working and contributing to society, you know, you're missing out on the revenues that that person is going, going to bring. And, of course, there's this other indefinable lack of, of, of impact of having someone who's, you know, entrepreneurial spirit and creative potential, everything they are as a whole person, we're deprived of as a society because we haven't been able to tap into that spirit. And if, if you read the book, you see a lot of that, you know, spirit in the young people I talk to. You know, a lot of really big dreams, big hopes, big ambitions. And if these kids were able to accomplish just half of what they wanted to, I think our nation would be in a much better place, you know, wasting that potential today. And what would it take for us to put solving the problem on disconnection on the national agenda? What's happening with our economy today, I think, may be part of what it's what is going to push this onto the national radar um, for the, the worst reasons. But the horrific economic pain that we are going to experience is going to fall disproportionately on young adults. The low wage, lower wage workers in hospitality, in food service, in retail, the ones who are on the front lines of having lost their jobs, they are disproportionately between the ages of 18 and 24. In fact, a new study came out from Brookings Institution over the weekend um, that finds that one in four of all low wage workers are between ages 18 and 24. And I was doing a little bit of work uh, researching in the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, one in three waiters and waitresses, servers, are between 20 and 24. So are 20% of all retail salespeople. Uh, and keep in mind the unemployment rate among young people between 18 and 24 was already significantly higher than it was for the overall unemployment rate. It's 12% among 18 and 19-year-olds not in school and double the current unemployment rate, which is what three, was 3.5% three among 20 to 24-year-olds. So if you have young people who are already, as a group, more economically disadvantaged than older workers, now you have this completely catastrophic circumstance that's going to wipe out opportunities for even more young people. We're talking about millions who've probably been instantly disconnected. If you count the college students who have been pushed out of their dorms many of whom are housing insecure, food insecure. I I really hope that whatever economic packages are coming down the pike will look specifically at the population of young people to make sure that their lifetime economic opportunities are not permanently scarred by the current crisis. And thank you for joining us on our program on the fan this morning. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Ann Kim, the author of Abandoned America's Lost Youth and the Crisis of Disconnection, published by the New Press, our guest on our program in this portion of it this morning. Thanks for joining us on this morning. When some of you are celebrating Easter Sunday, those of you celebrating Passover, wish you certainly a happy and healthy time in that observance. And keep in mind... We're all in this together. We want to be as healthy as possible. Keep practicing social distancing. Keep doing those things that we've been talking about for weeks. Washing of your hands, um, covering your face, nose, if you're in contact with others. But really just try to think about what you're doing. As you go through the day, try somehow to think of something positive. Keep a smile on your face. 
make eye contact with somebody, smile and say hello to them. Just an idea. Anne Liguria follows our program at 7 this morning. It's Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge after our 8 o'clock update. Mike Francesa is along after our 9 o'clock update. This is Bob Solter. We'll see you next Sunday morning here on The Fan. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.